happening, church? Good to see everybody this morning. I'm obviously not Kyle Dingus. Kyle and Abby are away visiting family uh, this past week, and I'm grateful that they are able to do that. They'll be back sometime later this week. Uh, I couldn't help but uh, really struggle with that last song. That song is one of my very favorites. I've already said at my funeral, that's one I won't play. I won't sung. Uh, it's just, I'll, I, I usually cry during every one, so I had to kind of pinch myself a little bit this morning. Uh, but I'm grateful you are here. Jane and I have been here a year. It's hard to believe we've been here a year, and uh, time has flown. And <laughs> We hope to stay a long, long time. We love this church. We love you. And if you're a visitor with us today, thank you for being here. We've got a lot of people that are traveling and some of you are traveling here to be with family, and we hope you have a wonderful time. Come back whenever you can, whether you live here in the Franklin area or whether you're from out of town, we'd love to see you again. Kyle has been leading us through a very challenging study of the last book of the Bible. And uh, I'm going to continue in that study this morning. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus has called upon John the Apostle to write letters to each of the seven churches of Asia. Kyle has preached on two of those seven letters, the very first one, which was the letter to the church in Ephesus, and to the last one, which was the church in Laodicea. And when he asked me a few weeks ago if I would preach today, he requested that I try to preach on one of those five churches that come between the first one and the last one. And I really have struggled over the last several weeks trying to decide which one of those I wanted to preach from because each one is so rich and each one is so relevant to, I think, the life of every church. And I really wanted to preach on all five, but I finally just had to select one that I was going to teach from today, and that's going to be the second letter to the church in Smyrna. Where were these churches located? Well, if you see the slide uh, behind me, the map on the screen shows that these seven churches are all located in what we know of today as Turkey. And uh, they were all relatively close together. I hope you can see on the map the, the city's large enough. If you can pick out where Ephesus is, it's down near the, the bottom left. That's the first letter that John wrote to the church in Ephesus. And as you make your way clockwise, uh, clockwise around that circle, each of those represents the order in which John penned those letters to the churches. Now, before we get into the meat of the letter of the Church of Smyrna, let me tell you a little bit about this ancient city. What you see on the screen is a picture of modern-day Smyrna, but it doesn't go by that name. It goes by the name of Izmir, and it is a very modern city with a large population of something like 4.5 million people. It's one of the largest and most important cities in Turkey. It has an excellent harbor on the Aegean Sea. Uh, it is one of the churches in the first century that it's the only one of the seven that still exists as a place where people live. The other six churches all are just in ruins. But Smyrna, when you think about it, even from the time that John wrote it, Smyrna already had a long and rich history when John wrote this letter. Even then, it was a beautiful city. 
It was a lovely climate. It was a delightful place to live. And of all seven of these cities, it by far and away was the most spectacular, the most splendid. It was prosperous. It epitomized sophistication. The people in Smyrna regarded their city as the pride of Asia. Smyrna even boasted of its wonderful stadium, of its magnificent library. And the city of Smyrna had the largest amphitheater in all of Asia. It even claimed to be the birthplace of the epic poet Homer. Now, of everything I can tell you about the city of Smyrna, the most important thing to help us understand the lesson today is that this church was was really, really devoted to Rome. Almost 200 years before Jesus was born, in the year 195 B.C., Smyrna was the first city to build a temple to the goddess Roma. Roma, this goddess, was the personification of everything that Rome stood for. And it was also the place, the first among the very first cities to ever engage in worship to the emperor of Rome. That so pleased Emperor Tiberius that in the year A.D. 26, Tiberius provided the funds to build a temple to himself in the city of Smyrna so that people could worship him there. Now that's so important for us to note because this city of Smyrna quickly became one of the major centers of worship of the Caesar as God. Smyrna took great pride in this temple, but it turned out to be a disaster for the Christians who lived there. At least once a year, every person in Smyrna had to burn a pinch of incense to the emperor and to declare Caesar is Lord. The Christians in Smyrna refused to worship the emperor. They refused to burn the incense. And what resulted from that was severe persecution. Now, with that background, let's read a portion of this letter, which, by the way, has only four verses. It's the shortest of all seven letters. Begin in chapter 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet... You are rich. I know about the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. It's clear that this church was suffering. Now, we know their suffering was not a result of sin on their parts, Because of the seven letters that are written, only two of the seven letters have no words of correction from Jesus. Only words of encouragement and words of praise. That's to the church in Philadelphia and to this church in the city of Smyrna. So the persecution they were suffering was not because of any sin on their part. Rather, it was coming from others who were persecuting them because they were living morally upright lives and because they refused to engage in worship of false gods. And Jesus acknowledged that suffering. 
He said, I know about your affliction. I know that you are poor. Jesus did not hide anything from this church. He told them that they were about to undergo intense persecution and that some of them would even be thrown into prison. Now, who was making life so difficult for the Christians in Smyrna? Well, it came from two different sources. One of those sources was the Roman Empire itself, the Roman authorities. Because they would not go into the temples, the the pagan temples, they would not worship Caesar as a god, they would not burn the pinch of incense, then the Roman authorities persecuted them. And no doubt many of the unbelieving people in that city, whether they be Romans or whether they be non-Roman citizens, would have persecuted them for the same reason. Why won't you go to the temples with us? Why won't you engage in all of the practices and lifestyles in which we engage? But the other source of persecution, according to verse 9, came from the Jews in that city who vigorously opposed the Christians. When you take on one hand Smyrna's zealous political loyalty to Rome and to the emperor, and you combine that with the strong anti-Christian hate and resistance that was coming from the Jews of that city, it made Smyrna a very dangerous place to live as a Christian. Some scholars even believe that life in Smyrna for a faithful Christian was more perilous than it was any place else in the Roman Empire. I want you to notice in verse 9 the word affliction. Jesus said, I know your affliction. The root word for affliction in the Greek language is a word that indicates pressure. And in classical Greek, that word was used to describe what it's like to have a boulder fall upon you and slowly crush you to death. Sometimes that word was also used of large stones which were used to grind wheat or to press the grapes until all the the juice was squeezed out of those grapes. And that's the word that's used in this text. Jesus said, I know your affliction. I know you are being squeezed. The very life is almost being squeezed out of you. Enemies of the church in Smyrna were trying to crush the Christianity out of them. And they were doing it with aggressive and cruel persecution. Based on what we know from just these four verses, they were suffering in at least four different ways. Number one, they were suffering from poverty. Secondly, they were suffering from slander. Third, some of them were going to be put into prison. And fourth, some of them were even going to lose their lives for following Jesus. So let's look at each one of those four. First, Jesus said, I know your poverty. The word used for poverty here indicates extreme poverty, severe poverty. Now that's really particularly striking because the city of Smyrna was one of the most wealthy cities anywhere in the Roman Empire. And yet these people are suffering extreme, severe poverty. Why were they so destitute? Well, some scholars believe that the Roman emperor at this time, whose name was Domitian, confiscated their property and their belongings as a way of punishing them for not worshiping him as a god. And no doubt many other of the people who lived in that city would have boycotted their businesses, perhaps even plundered any businesses that they would own. 
And given that kind of political and religious climate, it would have been extremely difficult for a Christian to have found employment that would pay him enough to support him family, maybe to find any kind of employment at all. Jesus knew about their poverty, and yet isn't it interesting in this text, he said, but you are rich. How could he say that? Jesus could say to these Christians, you are rich because he knew they had spiritual assets that made them rich for eternity. Two weeks ago, Kyle preached about the letter to the church in Laodicea. You remember that church? That's the church that's known as the lukewarm church. The church that thought that it was rich. And yet Jesus said to that church, you don't even realize how wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked you are. You see, it's possible to be rich in this world's resources and finances and yet be spiritually poor, to be spiritually bankrupt. But it's also possible for a person to be poor in terms of this world's assets and yet be rich spiritually, and that's what these people were. They were poor, severely in poverty. And yet Jesus said, you're rich because you are spiritually strong and you've invested yourself in spiritual things. You have a connection with me and with the Father. It's so, so much better to be poor in this world's possessions and yet rich in Christ than it is for us to be rich in this world's possessions and yet be bankrupt in our relationship with Jesus. Well, the second thing Jesus knew about them is their slander. I knew about the slander. I know about the slander, Jesus says, of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Judaism at this time in Smyrna was a legalized religion. And because Judaism was a legal religion, then they were exempt from the the commands to burn a pinch of incense to Caesar. They didn't have to say that Caesar is Lord. But Christianity was not a legal religion. And so we know that the persecution came, that, that resistance to Christianity. When you go back into the book of Acts, we read time and time again about the strong opposition to Christianity among the unbelieving Jews. Saul is probably the best example of all. Before he came to know Jesus, before he was converted to Jesus, we all know that Saul spent a great deal of his energy and time in trying to hunt down Christians and to persecute them and to jail them and even oversee the death of some of them. And so this Jewish opposition to Christianity in Smyrna actually fueled the persecution that was coming from the Roman government. These Jews in Smyrna who were persecuting them did everything they could to damage the church. In addition to boycotting and plundering the businesses of those Christians that lived there, they also slandered them. And we know from secular writings of this period that they slandered them in in so many different ways. They falsely accused them, for instance, of things like atheism. How could that be? They were accused of atheism because they refused to go to the temples and to, the, to worship the false gods and to say that Caesar's Lord. And as far as they were concerned, they were unbelievers and so they were atheists. At least that's what they accused them of. They were accused falsely of sexual orgies because they talked about loving 
each other. They were accused of incest because they talked about greeting each other with a kiss. They were falsely accused of cannibalism because these Christians talked about eating the body of Jesus and drinking his blood. So vile and so offensive was this Jewish slander against the Christians in Smyrna that Jesus referred to them not as a synagogue of God, not as a synagogue of the Jews, but as a synagogue of Satan. These Jews that were there were, no doubt, Jews in terms of their bloodline. They were Jews in terms of their ethnicity and even their nationality, but they were not true spiritual Jews as Paul would come to define them. They were descendants of Abraham, but they didn't have the heart of Abraham. One day during the ministry of Jesus, when several of his opponents, the Sadducees and Pharisees, came to argue with him and against him, Jesus said this in John chapter 8, I want to carry out your father's desire. Jesus said those words some 60 years before this letter was written to the church in Smyrna, and yet 60 years after Jesus spoke those words, the persecution against the church from those unbelieving Jews had not lessened one bit. Jesus assured this church that he knew that these slanderous things said against them were untrue. He wanted them to know that he knew their true identity. Jesus knew that they were suffering poverty. He knew they were suffering slander, but he also knew that things were about to get much, much worse. The third thing Jesus knew is that some of them were going to be thrown into prison. Note verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison. Jesus did not hide from them what was coming their way. He did not tell them that they would never suffer for him. He told them about their persecution in advance and encouraged them to prepare for it. It was not a matter of if they were going to be persecuted severely. It was only a matter of when that persecution was going to start. Suffering was nothing new for Christians in the first century and beyond. Jesus himself, our Lord, suffered. He suffered. He suffered from uh, the, the kind of rejection and criticism and opposition that eventually led to his crucifixion. Jesus said, no servant is greater than his master. And he also said in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. At the very beginning of his ministry, in what we know of as the sermon we call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said these words, part of the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they also persecuted the prophets who were before you. Years later when Paul was writing a letter to young Timothy, a young preacher, he wrote these words in 2 Timothy 3. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
Fourth thing that Jesus knew about this church is that some of them were going to die for following him. The King James Version renders verse 10 this way, Be thou faithful unto death. And based on that reading, we might interpret that as saying, well, you know, just be faithful until you die. Uh, Don't give up, don't quit, just hang in there until you die. Be faithful until you die. And while that sentiment is true, that's not really what this verse says. Because this verse says, be faithful even to the point of death. In other words, be faithful even though it may cost you your life. And no doubt some of these people in Smyrna, these Christians, would die. And some did die, as we will hear a little bit later. Now, none of that sounds like anything that we would desire, does it? It's not the kind of thing we would go out and seek. Who wants to be poor as a result of following Jesus? Who wants to be slandered as a result of our faith in Jesus? Who wants to be thrown into prison because we refuse to deny Jesus? And who of us would volunteer, just stand up and volunteer, say, well, go ahead and kill me because I'm a follower of Jesus? None of us would do that. Yet, what if, what if, what if we were called on to suffer in the same way that this church suffered in the days of John? What would Jesus say to us? And what would Jesus say to those Christians who live today in the year 2023 and about to be 2024? What would he say to the Christians today in various parts of the world who are suffering for him? who are in poverty because they're Christians, who are being slandered because they're Christians, who are being thrown into prison because they're Christians, and some who are being killed because they're Christians. What would he say to them? I'm convinced Jesus would say the same thing to them and same thing to us that he said to these Christians that lived in Smyrna. Here's the first thing that Jesus would say. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. And Jesus can say, do not be afraid, because these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. We already know from Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. We already know from Revelation 1, 18, that Jesus said, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And we know from Hebrews chapter 2 that Jesus has already defeated Satan who had the power of death so that he might free us from our own fear of death. And we know this without question that Jesus promises to raise us to a life that far exceeds our wildest imagination. And so Jesus says, even though you may lose your life, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I am the one who lives forevermore. See, life is unpredictable. It's ever-changing. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Everything around us may be shaking, but Jesus is our eternal and immovable rock. He is our solid foundation. And when we are afraid... When danger lurks and when persecution comes, if it comes to us, then we can find peace 
through our faith in the one who is the first and the last and who is alive and lives forevermore. So Jesus said, don't be afraid. Here's the second thing Jesus would say to all of us. He would say, suffering is a test. God does not tempt us. Jesus does not tempt us. That's the work of Satan. Satan tempts us. And there's a great difference between temptation and being tested. You see, temptation intends to trip us up and make us fall. Temptation is designed to destroy us and to damage us and to take us completely out of the race. God, on the other hand, allows suffering not to cause us to fall, but he allows that suffering to develop within us perseverance and strength and character and maturity and hope, a hope that is undefeatable. That's exactly what Paul says in the first few verses of Romans chapter 5. It's exactly what James writes in the first few verses of James chapter 1. And that if we can see that suffering, rather than harden us, if we can let it soften us and develop within us then those qualities of perseverance and hope and strength and maturity, suffering can actually become our friend. It takes a whole new mindset to be able to see that, but I think that's what Scripture teaches us. Because it teaches us to depend more fully upon God. To the Christians in Smyrna, Jesus said, Some of you will be put in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, what's this 10 days? Well, I don't believe 10 days is a, a literal 10 days. What 10 days is is really more symbolic of a, an indefinite period of time, but a brief period of time. The persecution that was about to come upon these people was going to be much greater than anything they had already experienced, but it was going to be brief. Jesus' point, I believe, is that God is in control. He is in control even when it seems like Satan just has free reign to do as he pleases. God allows Satan to exercise his power, but God puts limits on Satan. And we know that Satan's end is coming. God is sovereign. And while he allows Satan to exercise his power, he says, Satan, you can come this far, but no farther. And the comforting words to me are the things that Jesus said in verse 9 when he said, I know your affliction. I know. You're not alone. This has not escaped my notice. I know what it's like to suffer. I know what it's like to suffer poverty. I know what it's like to suffer slander. I know what it's like to suffer arrest. I know what it's like to suffer even a brutal death. And therefore, he knows what we go through when we suffer. We're not by ourselves. The third thing Jesus would say to all of us is this. Be faithful even to the point of death. I have never been threatened with death because I'm a Christian, and you probably haven't either. The troubling truth is that I have suffered almost no persecution at all because I'm a Christian. And I would dare say the same thing is true for most of us in this room. Why is that? It's a very troubling question to me. 
If everyone who's faithful to Jesus, Paul said, will suffer persecution, then why have I not suffered more persecution than I have? Thankfully, we do not live in a place like China or North Korea or in some radical Islamic state where the open practice of Christianity would put us in grave danger of poverty and slander and persecution and even death, as it is in places for people who live right now in those parts of the world. But what if? What if we found ourselves someday in a situation where our faith could cost us all of our resources? What if we found ourselves someday in a place where we were constantly slandered because we're followers of Jesus? Or if we were imprisoned or threatened with imprisonment? Or even if we were threatened with death or executed? Would we fear persecution so much that we would give up even before the test began? Would we crumble under the pressure or would we maintain our allegiance to Jesus? Would we compromise our beliefs and standards in order to save our incomes and to save our reputations and to save our own lives? Or would we be faithful like these Christians were in the city of Smyrna, even to the point of death itself? If there's no other point that you take home today to ponder I hope it's this one, and I think we need to ponder this long and deep. It's this question. Is there anything in my life, about my life as a Christian, that would cause anyone to persecute me? Or do I so blend in with the culture around me that nobody would suspect that I'm a Christian? I'm afraid we compromise far too much. Jesus' words, be faithful, are in the present tense, which means keep on being faithful. Don't ever stop being faithful. And in the face of any and every challenge to our faith and our trust in Jesus, Jesus would say to us, keep on being faithful no matter what even if it costs you your life. And here's the last thing I think Jesus would say to all of us. And this is the good news. I will give you life as the victor's crown. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. We're in a season right now where we're seeing all these bowl games. and I'm sure the winning teams are awfully excited about the trophies they're winning. But the victor's crown is so much more than a championship trophy. It is so much more than the Olympic gold medal. It's so much more than the Super Bowl ring because this crown of life represents everything that Jesus has promised. It's complete and total salvation and the gift of eternal life with God. And then he says, you won't be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? Well, if you go over to the end of Revelation, chapters 20 and 21 define exactly for us what the second death is. The second death is defined there as the terrible lake of fire. It is a symbol for the final judgment of all those who refuse to follow Jesus. 
It is a description of hell and eternal death. Ray Summers puts it this way. The unbeliever dies and finds another death. The believer dies and finds eternal life. We may lose our lives someday to persecution. It's possible. But even if we do, we will not be hurt by the second death. We will wear the victor's crown. We will be raised to live a victorious, eternal life with Jesus. Let me call the worship team up to the stage as we conclude this morning. I want to conclude by telling you a story about a Christian whose name was Polycarp, P-O-L-Y-C-A-R-P. You may want to go home and Google him, read about his life. It's pretty amazing because I'm only going to read just a small portion of what was reported that he said. Polycarp very, very likely was a young man when the Apostle John was a very old man and that they knew each other. And in the year 156, in the city of Smyrna, Polycarp, who was a leader in the church in that city, was commanded to bow down and to worship the emperor. And he refused. And how did that go for Polycarp? They burned him at the stake. And before he was completely dead, a wind blew the fire out and a soldier picked up a spear and threw it into his badly burned body, taking his life. I'm convinced without question that Polycarp will never experience the second death. He will wear the victor's crown because he was faithful even to the point of death. And if you and I are ever called upon to suffer persecution and possibly even death because of our faith, may you and I have the unbending, unyielding courage of a man like Polycarp to steadfastly hold on to our unwavering faith in Jesus Christ.